I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I am okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, a movie buff. I cannot believe we are celebrating 100 episodes right now, and I'm an evangelical. And since this is episode 100, I think if if podcasts are like TV, that means that our show can now go into syndication, and then we just retire and collect residuals, right? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, would be I'm nice. hearing, I'm hearing. No, they're not. That's not at all how they work. We're millennials. We don't get to retire. Okay. Well, in that case, this is Veterans of Culture Wars, episode 100. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity, welcoming you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. This is episode number 100. We started back in the fall of 2020, and here we are at the end of 2023 with 100 episodes. And that means, Zach, we got to have a really, really special guest for episode 100. Absolutely. And I I, I will say I'm kind of nervous. Uh, our, our guest today, Dr. Marlene Winnell. She is the founder and director of Journey Free, which is an organization that provides support for people struggling with leaving and recovering from religion. I'd I wrote toxic religious systems, but I don't think it needs a qualifier. Religion. Uh, she wrote the groundbreaking 1994 book, Leaving the Fold, a guide for former fundamentalists and others leaving their religion, which I've probably mentioned dozens of times on this show. And she originated the term religious trauma syndrome. Uh, when I told my religious trauma therapist I'd be speaking with her, he was very excited. <laughs> uh, this is somebody we've wanted to talk to since the very beginning of the show. I'm absolutely thrilled to have her here as our guest for our 100th episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Marlene Winnell. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here and join in on this uh, conversation. Thank you for being here. And and to start out, uh, in chapter two of your book, I uh, your book came out in 1993. I think I was reading a 2007 edition, if I wasn't mistaken. Uh, but chapter two is your own story. And so uh, would you like to start just kind of sharing your background with evangelical Christianity and Christian faith? Okay, well, I was born into it. So um, that starts the whole ball rolling. My parents were missionaries. I was born in Hong Kong and grew up in Taiwan. And uh, as a teenager, went to a Christian boarding school and really took the religion to heart myself personally. It meant a great deal to me as a teenager. And as I was moving into college years, we moved to the States in California. I went to college and uh, gradually uh, lost faith in as, as I learned more about the Bible and about church history and about uh, what was going on in the world. I had a combination of pushes and pulls, you might say. So pushes were pushing me out, the things that I was finding out about the religion, and also the church, the patriarchy. I was 
becoming more of a feminist and the way I was being treated as a female, not being allowed leadership roles in the the church and the way that uh, the pastor was getting excited about wars in the world because it would bring the end um, started to make me just not want to be anything, have anything to do with the church anymore. And then I was in college and then the the polls were uh, a matter of finding out a lot of information and having my world open up as I took classes in all sorts of subjects, anthropology, history, literature, art, psychology. Uh, All these things were uh, kind of in a candy store in college. And then also just meeting lots of people, meeting people that had worldviews that were different from mine and who weren't necessarily stupid or, or evil or crazy. So uh, getting to know people that that also, like, for example, some Buddhists that I met that also claimed the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, the things that we claim to have monopoly on in Christianity and um, had some of the same stories. So I was really challenged and actually uh, pleased to find out that these things that we were valuing were not limited to Christianity. And and I was very happy to let go of the we-they dichotomy of saved and damned, lost and and saved. And so that pretty much was the combination that got me out over the course of my college years. And then I I, uh, got married and got into psychology because that was a much better fit as a worldview. And you have your PhD in family systems and human think, development and human family development studies. Family studies, okay. Yeah, yeah. I went on. I got a, ma- a master's, a BA and master's at University of California, and then I went to Penn State for the PhD, and then uh, took the psychology courses that were required for licensure as a psychologist. Now, the the book predates the term religious trauma syndrome. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I think we should define that term. So let's do that by way by way of a larger question. Um, as terms like exvangelical and faith deconstruction have become more common, I've seen lots of criticism about folks that leave their faith. Sometimes it's couched in terms of church hurt, which seems to be making an attempt to acknowledge people's pain, but never accepting that it can be a good thing for people to leave faith. Mm-hmm. And posits that deconstruction is never good unless it leads to reconstruction, to staying in the fold with newfound purpose, essentially. Uh-huh. Um, why is it good for people to leave faith? And what's the difference between religious trauma and church hurt? Well, to be honest, I haven't heard the term church hurt before, but it sounds like it would be a term that really minimizes what's going on. Because what's really going on is somebody who's questioning the very foundation of reality that they've been taught. Because um, the the religion defines everything. It defines who you are, your your purpose on earth. It defines the future. It defines who other people are, what you should do for getting guidance in your life, following God's will instead of making your own decisions. Um Life after death, it, it defines absolutely everything. And so once you start finding the flaws, the big flaws, especially like, for example, if you've learned more about the Bible and, and conclude that it's not the literal word of God, 
then it's like a house of cards. It comes down and um, it's, it leaves you for a, a, a temporary amount of time. It leaves you rudderless. It re- leaves you really um, confused and at sea about, about uh, what to do with yourself or who you even are, the identity issue, you know, because Christians will often refer to themselves as Christians as a big part of who they are. And so if you've lost that, then then what do you do? Um, I, I, I also think that there is an important element of reconstruction, but not to go back to the old system. Reconstruction means um, com- finding out some of those answers for yourself, finding mm-hmm. out who you are and developing um, your own ideas. And you can draw from all, I mean, the questions that that evangelicals are asking and are, are the same questions everybody else asks, you know, like, what are we doing here? What is life? What's purpose? And um, those those things have been asked for centuries. And there are lots of traditions we get taught in the religion in, in Christianity, we get taught that there's only one way of viewing things. There's only one coherent system that you can buy into. Everything else is is wrong and 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 uh, irrational and, and evil and that there are no alternatives. But that's not true. You find out that 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 there are many points of view and many uh, philosophies that have dealt with these big questions for a long time. So I suggest to people that they educate themselves and then eventually um, write their own manifesto for what you think life is about and who you are and how you fit into it. Go ahead and draw from other traditions but start to take some ownership, take some responsibility and figure out who you are that 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 makes sense to you. You write in the book yeah. that when you process religious issues, you end up processing all of your issues. Yeah. In my experience, this is very true. Uh, when religion infused all of my intersectional identities and roles, removing it meant taking apart all of them my entire sense of self and putting myself back together with no all enveloping system in place felt like assembling Ikea and furniture with no instructions. Uh I'm wondering if this processing of all of one's issues tends to be the case more with people indoctrinated as children, uh, or if it's as common to, uh, to the process for folks who converted as a teenager later in life. Um, You know, if, if Dave here, Crossing my fingers, if if episode 200 is the big reveal that he has left faith, uh, he didn't have the experience that I did of, of, of having it being indoctrinated and all I ever understand from birth. Um, he was 14, I believe. Um, That's correct. So if he were to go through the process I went through, typically, what sort of differences do you see? Well, I think you're right about not being as indoctrinated. That's That's one thing. Um, children are the main source of new new recruits, you know, child evangelism. And and there's a big emphasis on child evangelism because children don't really have the cognitive ability to uh, rationally assess what they're being taught or compare it to other religions or compare it to atheism or do any sort of, even though they're told that it's a free choice, it's not a free choice at all. It's a presentation of what everybody around you believes and then a huge amount of pressure to conform. So children get taught all the uh, precepts of Christianity at an age when they're very young 
And a lot of times people will say they had a salvation experience around age five, because that's an age when your brain is actually able to process the some basic ideas that you're being told that, 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 that a child that age is able to feel guilty. So you can tell them that they're a sinner. Mm. They start to feel empathy so they can feel bad about Jesus on the cross. And they they start feeling uh, a little bit of agency. These are these this is cognitive development, which goes on past age five. Of course, it goes on for years. Our brains are not fully developed until our early twenties. It turns out, but um, to to present all these ideas to small children um, uh, causes them to to simply believe because that's what that's what they need to do to survive and also that they haven't got much choice. The problem is that there are teachings and practices that that in the religion that are toxic. And, and, and when we talk about religious trauma, we're talking about mental things as well. I mean, there are certainly some problematic physical, sexual kinds of uh, abuses. But what I wanted to look at with my book was uh, the, the 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 mental emotional kinds of effects, and over the years, what I ended up thinking was that there were two basic assumptions that are taught to children that cause them to have trouble later in life, even after you leave leave the religion. One is the teaching you're not okay, hmm. and the other is you're not safe. And and these two ideas are so pernicious and dangerous and yet yet believable to the child's mind that you can you can have that kind of conviction about yourself and about the world at a very deep level and to where it becomes subconscious and um, struggle with those two notions for the rest of your life and so that's that's a pretty big indication that there is mental and, and, and emotional trauma yeah, and you mentioned there indoctrination, and you talk about dogma a lot in your book, and especially that as being uh, problematic. And dogma, I think, you know, if we have like a loose definition of it, it's kind of strong notions of what the truth is or what right and wrong is. Um, but how do we deal with, you know, I, I think all of us as human beings, whether we're secular or Christian, whether we're a person of another faith, to an extent, we all have dogma, though, right? We all have senses of what's right and wrong and truth. How do we parse that out? Like when when does it become problematic in your mind? And when is it, you know, just kind of a normal human thing mm -hmm. to have notions of truth and right and wrong? Well, I, I don't think everybody holds information in the same way. Um, one thing that the religion teaches you is black and white thinking. Mm -hmm. And that and, and also teaches you that you have to have answers, you have to have certainty. Some people have called it a certainty addiction. Yeah, that's my my Twitter bio right now says recovering certainty addict. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So people don't you you can have um, principles for living, you know, values, guidelines that you subscribe to, you know, like the golden rule, uh, with without being entrenched in this uh, either or black and white thinking. You can still appreciate. Complexity. I mean, one thing that that's uh, a big development that people have to go through after they leave the religion is to accept the fact that life doesn't have final answers on everything, and that maybe some of the questions don't even need to be asked. You know, 
My cat hasn't accepted Jesus as her savior. So maybe there are ways of living. I'm sorry. I just thought it. <laughs> Neither has my dog Coda, at least that I <laughs> But that you can live with ambiguity, complexity, mystery, and and that can actually be okay. You know, you can feel I'm more certain about some things and not others. You can also be open to growing and changing. It doesn't have to, you do not have to define yourself in stone and have all your beliefs be in stone where you can't change and grow and learn. And actually, that's one of the exciting things about getting out of a dogmatic system is that you have this 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 change and growth potential. Uh, since we're talking about kind of virtues and values, um, you do have a section in your book where you you recognize the strengths uh, from religious traditions, uh, certain qualities that um, uh-huh. you maybe encourage people to take with them as they're as they're leaving faith. Uh, okay. One of those was gentleness, and this uh-huh. was an this is just an incredible, weird story. You know, maybe sadly all too common these days. I once had a pastor tell me, "Oh, you are so gentle," and he did not mean it as a compliment. And like at this point, I definitely probably should have pushed back. But in my mind, I'm thinking you know, gentleness, like one of the fruits of the the spirit that's in, you know, that's in Galatians. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, you wrote this book in 1993. Uh-huh. There are some things that have changed about conservative evangelicalism, or maybe not changed, but stuff that's been pushed to the forefront as far as kind of a aggressive, masculine, macho kind of chess beating Christianity. Um, uh-huh. Before this episode, Zach and I were talking about how we were a part of Marsdale Church. Zach was there for about nine years. I was there for about three, although our paths did not cross. And that's kind of Mark Driscoll's brand is this, you know, fire and brimstone, get the guys, chest uh-huh. bumping Christianity. Um, is this something that you've observed over time that has changed? Uh, do you think that there were there were these elements back um, when you were a missionary and when you first came to the States and got involved in the Jesus movement in California, or do you think something is is different today with, with those kind of messages being pushed? Well, I, I think it goes back, you know, in the, the, the history goes back further than my own life. You know, this, this, uh, these changing notions, especially changing notions of Jesus, you know, with his suffering savior or, you know, uh, a, a gentle shepherd and and caring for the poor and weak and reaching out to to the, the the outcasts of society. That whole image of Jesus, you're right, has has evolved. It has changed, and um, especially in the U.S., you know, it it ends up dovetailing with Americanism, where you know we're the tough guys, and Jesus is going to come like the. Jesus is going to come back with his army and he's going to be pissed, you know? Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's Mark Driscoll's yeah, sermons. It's like call the him MMA the Jesus yeah. is how he'd refer right. to him, you know, mixed martial arts. And yeah, it was wild. There's yeah, so the images and you, you can buy t-shirts, you know, with yeah. pictures of Jesus that are just all muscular. It looks like he should be in a Marvel movie. There's, there's a line in, in the book that really stood out to me. And I I wonder if it relates to this, but uh, you, you write, the Bible does not offer any guidance for processing feelings. I think a lot of people may sort of reactively disagree with that mostly because, you know, we're taught, well, the Bible 
gives us all the instructions we need for any encounter we may have in life and any anything we need to go through. When I thought about it, though, and I kept thinking about how we're told that Jesus experienced and felt everything we could ever experience and feel. And so we're just supposed to feel better about our big feelings because we know we aren't alone in having them. But that's not processing. That's just acknowledging that they exist. Uh-huh. Can you talk about that, the the actual processing of feelings and how that's different from how Christians typically handle feelings? Well, the, the Christian attitude is is basically, and I don't mean to oversimplify because I know that 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 Christians have all all the feelings everybody else has, but but the idea in the religion is that you're supposed to feel positive all the time if you have God working in you and the joy of the Lord, mm-hmm. right? The joy of the Lord is supposed to be present all the time, so that if you're angry, you're doing something wrong. If you're sad or depressed then you're not allowing god to be in you and so that's a sin uh it's really sad in terms of mental health how feelings are treated because they're treated more like pathologies than real emotions that that are important to understand and a a secular view is that all the feelings have a biological base and you know we have some appreciation for ourselves as animals that need to survive that we have basic needs, and that when needs get frustrated, we have sad feelings, angry feelings, and that we need to stop and understand what's going on, especially understanding what we need and find um, ways of meeting those needs that aren't destructive. But there isn't really any discussion of that in Christian circles because, for one thing, there is no appreciation of the of, of evolution of ourselves as animals that have all of these all of, all of these emotions all the time and for and for good reason so um i don't know about you but i didn't find any real effort to understand the negative feelings mm-hmm. or to figure out how to use them in a positive way they were more just treated like problems and made and and you were supposed to pray to for God to take it away, you know. For and and th- and this ends up being a pretty big problem if you have uh, someone who's experiencing a a big injustice, and and gets pressure to just forgive instead of look look for justice or look for understanding or look for some kind of um, some kind of process. For for example. Uh, people that are sexually uh, sexually abused coming to their church leaders and being told that they need to forgive their the the perpetrator and and not follow through on looking at the actual situation and and pursuing it yeah. so calling the police yeah yeah so um this idea well forgiveness I mean this is kind of a whole subject in itself but forgiveness can be, a, a problematic thing to jump to you have uh so many different challenges to uh the mentality of being in a religious community which you also have in your book um there are many studies out there and you reference this in your book about the psychological benefits of being involved in a faith community and if i remember right i think you even say you know obviously this is one of the reasons why it's it's difficult for some people uh to leave faith um but then you also talk about obviously how religion can be 
uh, negative for people's mental health. But how do how do we deal? How do you deal with that tension of there is a psychological benefit? At least you know a lot of studies out there show that. Um, but there's also you're making the case that there's a negative benefit. Um, how, how do you address that tension? Well, this is this is the big issue of um, whether you want comfort or whether you want the truth. And in, in religion, you get you can get a lot of comfort. You know, you're talking to your imaginary friend in the sky who's going to take care of you and who's really going to take care of you after you die. And if you sincerely believe this, that's that's great. You know, it can make you feel better. Or if you have a disaster in your life and you have you get comfort from praying, um, you can get comfort from from you know having this whole relationship with with God and feeling saved. So that seems to uh, be of benefit. The other thing that seems to be of benefit is the social context. People have a community, and that's huge. You know, we live in a very alienated society where yes. people don't have a groups of friends that they can rely on, places to go for potluck dinner and and where they can have their their rituals of life transitions and all that. So as a as a uh, community that can be hugely supportive of people and those studies i have i have a, a problem with these studies because they don't separate out these things they don't separate out the meaning of having a community or the meaning of having an imaginary friend and or you know some of the, some of the relationships that are positive that are in in the religion they don't separate out these factors and I know enough enough about research and research design to know that when you throw everything into the same pot like that, your results are not going to be meaningful. Those results that say religion is good for you are not really meaningful because they're not really identifying what aspects are meaningful for you. So, and and, and the same is true for other groups like AA. You know, AA you can you can have a problem with the higher power kind of thing, but they do things that are amazingly powerful, like they meet constantly, right? They help people form relationships. They help people communicate. They have sponsors. Everybody gets a sponsor. Oh, my God, you know, that's pretty cool. So um, that that that's what happens in religion. You have these, these perks. And so when you when you start having problems with, with the religion, like when they're starting to feel it's starting to feel like like it's it's controlling and conforming and you don't believe the wild the bible is the word of god anymore it's hard to separate out uh and and so i try to help people realize that yes there were some good parts and that's okay and you can learn from that like for example the idea of having community you 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 can find some other community or communities and that's a little harder because they aren't on every corner. We don't have, uh, you know, humanist meetings uh, every Sunday at some, uh, that, on several corners in the town. So it's harder to find that support. But you still need some of those things that you got in the religion. So one of the exercises in my book is to list out what some of the needs are that were met by your religion and then do another another round of looking at your needs in terms of what are you going to do about them now? Because the needs don't go away. Some of those same needs that you have. And 
so the and the other thing is you know this uh, uh, addiction to certainty the, the the religion gives you all the answers and that feels good too. There's a lot about it that feels good, mm-hmm. and so you can't really deny that. And losing that certainty can feel very destabilizing. Uh, yeah. In in the book, you talk about the phases of recovery from religious indoctrination, which you list as separation, confusion, avoidance, feeling, and rebuilding. We've talked about grief a lot on here. We know that these so-called stages of grief aren't really all that helpful as grief just isn't linear. We don't move from one Uh stage to the next and then graduate from grief and don't feel grief anymore. Um, How do the phases of recovery from religious indoctrination tend to play out as you you see it? One thing I should say on... uh up front is that we need to have some more research on this. Hmm. I just kind of sketched out a template there. There, there needs to be long-term longitudinal kinds of research to see what people go through. If when they leave faith and, and, and reconstruct, because um, for one thing, you can be having huge emotional struggles at the time of at, at the at the, at the time that you're leaving, so, sometimes it can happen very fast. It can happen, and other times it can happen over a long time. But what sorts of issues, what sorts of things are you going through at the time that you break with your religion? You know, because it really is a break. It's a shattering kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So you, it's it would make sense, and that's why some of these studies are just absolutely wrong when they compare groups because they're doing a cross-section and they're taking people at different points of the process. So if you take somebody who has just left the faith and is totally confused and struggling about their basic identity and everything else, then of course you're going to get somebody who's low in life satisfaction. That's usually what they measure is life satisfaction. And that's just hugely global. But, but what happens over time is people go through these stages and, um, then things gradually get better, you know, when the shock of the break has has passed, and you realize that there are some things that you can do differently. Then it can it, it then it, then it changes, and uh, the, the the thing about avoidance, people do sometimes feel like they get they're better, everything's fine, ignore all the issues, and go for a period of time. I have lots of clients who have said that they left the faith like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, something like that. But they never really paid much attention to what it meant. And so like 10 years later, it's caught up to them. Mm. And they realize that there has been a big impact and there are some big issues that just haven't been dealt with. So that's been very interesting to me. And I think the re- the rebuilding... That could take the rest of your life, probably. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you 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 write in the book, within fundamentalism... Your worth was based on being a redeemed child of God. The atonement was essential to cleanse you of original sin. Now you may struggle with feeling bad and worthless. It will be important in your healing to fully accept yourself, to appreciate and love yourself, and learn about the kind of self uh, the kind of self esteem that does not depend on external approval. After an indoctrination about the sins of the flesh, learning to appreciate your own body and enjoy your sexuality is likely to be another challenging but rewarding area of growth. This gets into a few things. Let's let's start with bodies. Bodies are so important to people leaving faith. 
learning how to use them and listen to them and experience things without shame. I I got a whole body massage for the first time in my life uh, just a few months ago at, at a spa. Uh, it was actually a, a, a all nude co-ed spa um, that I went to with my wife. And uh, I talked with my masseuse about choosing to to do things like this that I've never been comfortable with. I don't think I've ever, and I probably still don't quite yet love my body, but I'm getting to know it better. How do you see this experience of one's body factoring into people's journey of faith? Why is this so important? Well, loving your body is so basic. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an understandable way to start. You know, because everybody has a body and you can learn about um, how emotions are stored in the body, how trauma gets stored in the body. Sometimes when people get a body massage, they end up having a lot of emotion on the table, end up crying and not know why. Yeah. Because your body's being being manipulated and, and touched. And so... Uh, you you end up getting more in touch with your feelings because of that. So um, so I would say to learn about uh, learn learn about the body and and how it works and how some of the feelings are happening in your body so that you can appreciate them on on this level of loving it and then extending out from there. It's just such a concrete way of starting the whole process of self love and self care. And and it makes a lot of sense in terms of you then being able to love other parts of yourself. Yeah, I feel like I was so disconnected while in faith from my body that like I just I wasn't taking care of myself. Like I I would get a headache and I wouldn't take any medicine, and my wife would have to t- I'd complain. Oh, I'm really in pain, and my wife would have to say you should take something. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. I just wasn't listening. The 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 lines of communication uh were non-existent it felt like um part of getting to know our bodies for the first time maybe for some of us is going to involve sexuality and this is where critics evangelical critics will often say that people deconstruct in order to sin sexually in reality it's more often the case that deconstructing or leaving faith is a process of getting to the other side of a deeply painful existential crisis, finding freedom there and exploration of sexuality is a way of getting in touch with yourself in ways you couldn't before due to shame, social pressure, or a fundamental disconnect from your body. I also think it's okay to push back on that criticism by saying it's okay to have sexual experiences that evangelicals would call sin. (laughs) There's a ton of things that are perfectly normal and healthy that they call sin. Uh-huh. How do you respond to that line of attack that people leave faith in order to sin sexually? And how do you see sexual exploration and sex positivity play out in healthy ways for people as they leave faith? Well, it's interesting when people accuse uh, reclaimers. I call them reclaimers, people that people that have left the faith and are reclaiming their life. To accuse reclaimers of just wanting to sin, um, because you wonder whether it's uh, pro- total projection. <laughs> sure, right. <laughs> but the fact is, it's just not true. I mean, it's just just not true. I mean, they they don't bother to ask, right? 
I had a many, many years ago, I had, I was at a family dinner when one of my in-laws uh, said that very thing about leaving in order to sin. It was just, it's so offensive because yeah. it's not, it's not letting you, um, it's not giving you the chance to even explain or represent yourself to talk about what it was that really drove you away. And it's not, it's not wanting to sin because it turns out you leave the faith and then you talk about values or things that you want to do. Um, you know, maybe you want to pursue a career or have a relationship or do some social service or, or do any travel, do any number of things. Rarely does somebody say, I want to do evil things. <laughs> you know, right. Just, I don't recall hearing that. No. So, I mean, that, that accusation is based on no information at all because they're not even asking. If I could circle back around to uh, your story <laughs> um, a little bit, because uh, you talked about something in the chapter of your story that was really interesting to me, uh, speaking of bodies and and maybe brains and minds and what happens. Um, so you talk about the baptism in the spirit, uh-huh. which is different from the Christianity that I've been a part of, because I, I I haven't been charismatic or Pentecostal. That's another thing that, that Zach and I have. Yeah, that was my background, Foursquare Vineyard. Yeah. yeah. I've been in more reform circles. Um, I'm in a Presbyterian of USA church right now, the more mainline uh, Presbyterian. Uh, but you write in this chapter, um, quote, my baptism experience was an ecstatic 45 minutes of speaking in tongues, which felt like 10 minutes. Even now, I believe it was a very special mystical experience, one which I am not sure how to interpret. It certainly was an altered state with overwhelming feelings of total love and acceptance comparable with the spiritual transcendence experienced by people in a variety of spiritual traditions, unquote. Um, And, you know, reading it, it definitely seemed like this was an incredibly meaningful experience in your Mm -hmm. life. Um, And I'm wondering what you think about this experience today. Is it still just a, a mysterious kind of thing? Uh, do you explain it more as just the functionality of your your brain and just the environment and the the cultural context that you were in, or do you still leave the door open that maybe something spiritual did happen to you at that point, or all of the above? Well, I think since I wrote that, actually, I've learned more about the brain. The brain is so capable of constructing things and creating altered states. And so we find this, you know, in in um, cross-cultural situations, we find it in the charismatic uh, experience and people can like fall down on the floor and, and, and claim that they can't move. Um, people can claim a lot of experience, a lot of things. And so what's amazing is that uh, the brain is, uh, susceptible to to creating, especially the altered state, and 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 if you think about what goes into that, there's usually social pressure. 
where everybody, if, if everybody around you is speaking in tongues and then you get encouraged to do it, and pe sometimes people will try to jumpstart you with a few lines. <laughs> <laughs> what do I know that? <laughs> I remember being at a retreat in youth group. So my, my parents were very much into speaking in tongues. They always wanted that for me. I never wanted that. I never really connected with the charismatic churches. That's part of why Mars Hill worked for me. It was more intellectual. Um, uh -huh. But I remember like being at a like junior high youth group retreat. And it was like time where they had like the leaders stationed around the room to ask for anybody can go up and ask for prayer, or whatever. And like most of the kids were like crying, speaking in tongues or whatever. And I was not doing those things. And that made me feel shame. And I went and asked for prayer that I wouldn't be apathetic. Uh-huh. Lukewarm. Uh-huh. Like, oh, I have a problem because I'm not crying because I'm not speaking in tongues. So <laughs> it's, there is a lot of pressure for that in those yeah, environments. I, I, I tried many times in situations like that and same experience. I felt like there was something wrong with me. But the thing is, you have, the situations can vary a lot. And your your brain, every, it, it, brains are different, you know, and they respond to different things. So there's nothing wrong with you, um, but you don't know that at the time. At the time, it looks like this is what you're supposed to do. And for some people, that kind of social pressure actually works, you know, especially if you get right in the mob and have everybody around you doing it. It's not that difficult to follow suit. I wonder... I, I wanted to ask about being present and I, I, I wonder because it was so difficult for me to ever be present when I was a Christian that, that we were focused so much on stuff be after life and to the extent like you can't enjoy anything in this world because everything was, uh, you know, uh, the best meal you ever had is nothing compared to everything you'll ever eat in heaven. You know, all of this is just absolute crap compared to, just baseline existence in heaven and all that. I, I wonder if speaking in tongues is one of the few times where they can be present. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, when it comes to the present stuff, like you, you, you write in the book, this controlled focus on the spiritual and the afterlife instructs Christians to maintain an aloofness from the world and to withdraw any emotional investment from worldly affairs. Thus, the first reason to discredit the world is because it is simply irrelevant. The things of this world are vastly uh, inferior to things above. For the devout Christian longing to be with God, this can amount to a death wish taken to the extreme in cult-like groups. It can even lead to suicide. I think irrelevance is a great word here. We're taught to focus so much on the afterlife that we devalue the present. Uh, as I was reading that, I was thinking about that verse, you know, now I see dimly as in a mirror which looking back seems to reflect not how much greater it will be then, but it seems to sort of explain away the doling of our senses um, by oh. telling us that, that we're actually reaching the limits of our experience as humans. Learning oh. to be present is one of the most important areas of my post-faith life. How important has learning to be present been for you and the people you treat and how how <laughs> i don't it's i don't huge. assume you've mastered it but yeah 
Well, you're right that in, in the religion, they denigrate, they denigrate ordinary human experience. Mm -hmm. Even to the point of doing these weird comparisons, like listening to music, like a beautiful orchestra, and then saying how much better the angels singing would be. Yeah. Or in one case, I, I had this experience. I was at the beach and I took a picture of the sunset. It was really beautiful. And then I sent it to my sister, who's a devout Christian. And she wrote back something about it being beautiful and you have to acknowledge the artist. Right. And I, at first I thought she meant me. And then I realized, <laughs> <laughs> I realized no, it wasn't my photography at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every time something good happens, you're just like attributing it to God. Of course, if something bad happens, it's your fault. But if something good happens, you attribute it to God. And um, and then you compare it with what would be so much better. So, yeah, there is this detachment from the world. And also the teaching that if you get too involved, that it would be a sin. You know, that if you got too attached to your career or to attach to your art or to attach to your music or gardening or tennis. My my brother quit playing tennis because he liked it too much and he thought it was becoming a sin. Oof. So so withdrawing from all of these experiences is really sad. And then, you know, in general, there is this this lack of appreciation and lack of participation in things like the arts. I mean, you don't see evangelical Christians excelling in these areas, you know, mm -hmm. because there because it takes a lot of dedication, and it, that's that's considered wrong. So anyway, back to your question about learning learning to do differently. Yes, that's a very uh, big area of, of uh, personal healing and growth. It's also really exciting. It's really fun because you you it's it, it, it's like you know this whole world opens up to you, and you are allowed to go ahead and dive in and appreciate it, and enjoy yourself, enjoy your body, enjoy dancing, enjoy movement, enjoy sex, enjoy beauty, enjoy in interesting intellectual concepts. Read, read books, read anything you want, go to any movies you want. You know, you have permission. So I enjoy saying to people, welcome to life. Welcome to earth. You know, and it's, it's pretty full of amazing things. And so you can, you can sort of change your orientation to that. Yeah. Rather than just <laughs> assuming all of our, the, the limits of our five senses are so low, you know, we don't have, all have to, push those limits and try to figure out what the boundaries are of them, but we can realize that it's probably a lot further than what we have yet experienced. I'm, I'm a big uh, fan of uh, the neurologist, the late neurologist, Oliver Sacks. Uh, yeah. I, I, I named my, my younger child after him. And I remember he, he wrote a whole book about his multi decades long experience trying to, find a particular blue in the real world that he'd only experienced uh, on a drug trip in the seventies or something. And, <laughs> and I think about like how the cones in our eyes are only capable of processing so many colors and, and that, uh, you know, a, a creature like the, I think it's the mantis shrimp has the most cones in their eyes. They're able to experience more colors than any other creature in the world. 
by many factors beyond what we can experience, but it's, it's brain also can't really do a whole lot more than that. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and I think it takes, uh, it takes in like interprets colors as, as instructions to, to do things or something. But, but, you know, he, he was saying, I, I want to experience this. I want to, for my senses, if it's possible for my senses to take in this color without needing to make a weird, a shortcut to my brain with uh, through drugs or whatever, then I want to see if I can find that. And I think spending our lives seeing what we can find and, and knowing that some of those may be impossible, but it's still really, really fun and interesting Uh to try to find them, try to find limits on, on our experiences is, is super valuable and and inspiring and and is something that keeps us going i think extends our feeling of how long we are living our lives uh uh-huh. uh-huh. and you you can actively do things that will improve your observation like like taking up photography for example mm-hmm. that's something that i've done and i i take pictures of very small things and very funny things you know like broken window or a piece of trash on the ground that that might be forming a shape that's interesting. Um, but to just train your eye to notice more, mm-hmm. train your ears, you know, train yourself to notice more, and uh, slow down. So that's that's really important. I mean, that's that's important for everybody because we all get caught up in the minutia of life, but. Uh, but it's especially rewarding for somebody who has been been avoiding it. To pick up on this theme, do you think there is an aspect where someone can hold too tightly to life to the point that it might be damaging? And I'm thinking here of, you know, even like a Buddhist idea of nirvana, you know, if you desire something you could you you could suffer at some point. Like um I'm not a Buddhist and I'm sure a Buddhist monk would give me much more nuance and complexity to those ideas but um but is there something where we can we can enjoy life and that's important like what you're talking about but can we hold it too tightly and it be unhealthy i'm not sure what you mean by hold it too tightly can you explain what that is yeah i guess um trying to alter things that maybe we just can't change Okay, yeah, like the serenity prayer, right? Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, sure. Trying to exert your will over things that are not controllable and then yeah. getting getting upset when things don't turn out the way you want. Yeah, there's yes. a, huge, a huge need for accepting the world, accepting reality as it is and not just mm-hmm. as you want it to be. So in that sense, yeah, I would agree with you. You can hold you can hold on t- too tightly to your imagined view of things. I don't know if you can hold too tightly to reality because rea- reality is mixed. You know, we have good days, bad days, good things happen, bad things happen. If you can develop an acceptance and go with the flow, that's certainly going to be a lot healthier for you. I think that trying to focus on changing something that you probably can't change is probably going to be a a focus on the future you know you're trying to prevent a thing from 
things from going the way that you think they're going to go. And you have anxiety about how you see things heading. And that's such as another Trump presidency. Yeah. Like (laughs) I can vote. I can talk to people about it, but I can't ultimately decide whether that happens. And it can give me a lot of anxiety, but it's ultimately out of my control. It is in the future, which is abstract and, and unknowable. The only thing that is truly real is the present. And that's what I'm going to try to to live in and live out of um, knowing that I'm not going to be perfect in doing that. I'm still going to experience anxiety about Trump because I know what it was like for those four years. And it was so incredibly difficult uh, as as a dad with 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 young kids. Uh, uh, It was just absolutely horrendous. But I also don't want to keep living that. I don't want to keep focusing on the past and going over that over and over. I want to know that I still have my kids. They're older now. They're and we are enjoying things together now. My oldest okay. is learning to play guitar and I've played for many years and we're he's just getting good enough at it that like we can play a song together that he picks out and I teach him how to play. And that can can be happening right now and I don't have to worry I don't I, I can I can just focus on that and not think about how awful it was when Trump was president or how awful it will be if he becomes president again. I can just uh, enjoy life with my kids. Yeah, sometimes it's a, it's a balance between um, knowing how to focus on the present and and when to do that. And other times to plan ahead, you know, to put some money away for retirement or buy some car insurance mm-hmm. or plan for, for kids college. Um, humans have the ability to to imagine the future and to do some things that are going to have a long-term payoff or, uh, you know, be involved politically to do your best to uh, prevent Trump from getting elected again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and right, I mean, one of the things that we experience, right, is when, uh, on big issues, as a feeling of helplessness, mm-hmm. like right now with what's going on in the Middle East, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, with Israel and Palestine, it's a it's it's so horrendous, and it's easy to feel, to 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 feel a sort of helplessness. So sometimes it's a challenge to find a way, to to make a difference, and um, it turns out actually that uh, ex fundamentalists are. Uh, often interested in political activism mm-hmm. in uh, like uh, climate change and so forth and trying to have some impact on society, which is, I think, pretty cool. Yeah, it makes sense that they'd be interested in climate change in, in particular, since so much of the the Christian mindset is, well, God's going to destroy the whole earth anyways. And, you know, something like 80 percent of older evangelicals currently think Jesus is coming back before 2050. And so they just they don't care about any policy that would be trying to preserve this world. And if you leave faith, you're like, oh, this is the only world we have. (laughs) Maybe maybe we should do something for our kids and grandkids. Um, As far as other things that that, you know, stuff looking down the road, stuff that is in the future, stuff that I do feel anxiety about. A couple of days ago in your blog, you published a piece titled Coming Out to Your Parents as Uh, Uh Non-Religious. Regular listeners will know 
My dad died unexpectedly in 2018, and that kind of precipitated a lot of my deconversion, but I still haven't come out to my mom or my in-laws. I've been doing this podcast for three years and have never mentioned it to them. Um, I think a lot about how Dr. Dobson trained parents like mine to create distance, to demand obedience above all and reject friendship, to avoid friendship with their kids because that would undermine their authority. And then once we're adults, we can't just flip a switch and be friends. It's it's difficult uh -huh. to make that transition. Um, but, you know, people say that meaningful friendships require honesty and transparency. Uh -huh. uh, I want to choose what I will be transparent about. I've put up a boundary about this part of my life without telling them that the boundary exists. Um, what do you say to people who want to live authentically, but withhold this part of themselves from their religious families? Well, I think sometimes there can be some good reasons for that. I mean, there's no rule that says you have to come out to everybody. This is not a requirement for a reclaimer. It's something that you consider and, and uh, you, you have to consider what all the factors are. Like in your case, you know, what, what do you think? some of the reasons are for choosing the path that you've chosen? Uh, well, I I think that I don't want to mess up relationships with my wife's side of the family because I don't think that's my place. That, that if I basically told them, we don't go to church anymore, we're not raising our kids to be Christian, we're not into it, that would create a whole lot of drama on their side that would be my fault for instigating. As far as with my mom... You know, I she, she's of the belief that basically her entire job as a parent is to punch her kid's ticket to heaven. And if yeah. she found out that, you know, that I decided that I may have been bought bought for a price, but I'm uh, refunding God, that she would take that very personally. And she would think that uh, that she's a failure and yeah. it would get very, you know, she's. I've also read that book of like uh, uh, um, about emotionally immature parents and a lot of that connected with me. And there's that. I mean, to the extent like I don't know if I'd be jeopardizing like inheritance money that would take care of my kids um, by telling my mom this. I honestly don't know if 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 I could be just like cut off from support and. Uh -huh. So it's just not worth it to oh, me to risk it. that. So I have to pretend to be a much more boring person than I think I am when I'm around yeah. her. You know, I'll just talk about what's going on with work or school for the kids. And I don't get to mention these amazing people like you that I have conversations with and that have uh, uh, amazing uh, impact on, on my life and what I've been going through. I just withhold all of that. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I can understand what you're saying. Um, often what people find is that it turns out better than expected. Where uh, parents sometimes will have an immediate reaction. And I understand that the idea that you failed as a parent. But my my belief is still that you have to let parents be responsible for their own feelings. And that they have to process that on their own and that there's a certain amount that you can't do for them. 
but that you have to let them work out their own disappointment and their own their own feelings of failure and then move on from there and and often people find that it works out better than expected um not always but sometimes it works out better than expected and they end up adapting because they have to you know it's like coming out gay if you were if you were gay and you were in, you were in the closet you know and and you wanted to be more authentic and let your parents know that because your lifestyle is is different your choices you're making are different then um it would be the up to them to figure out how to accept that <laughs> yeah yeah my my mom already went through that and uh decided to not talk to my sister for several years uh, um yeah. um they get along better now, but yeah, it was a pretty, pretty brutal time period. Yeah. But there is this idea in religious families that you're supposed to protect your parents. You're supposed to obey them, mm -hmm. obey and honor them. And so there is this confusion about personal responsibility and, and boundaries, you know, and, and identity. So, uh, yeah, this idea that you have to spare your parents any feelings of discomfort with with who you are, and I call this this tension between integrity, integrity and intimacy. In that, we want connection, mm -hmm. right? We want to maintain connection, and at the same time, we want to be authentic, and so sometimes, and that can sometimes just become more and more of an urge. To be real, to be to be authentic, to 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 have some integrity around that. So it depends on what where you are with that tension, you know. And uh, sometimes it just becomes so great that you end up having to share who you really are because you're going to take the consequences of it. I guess I wonder if it's different for for folks that always had a very uh, close open intimate relationship with their parents and so sharing this big change in their life there's a tension about well like i always tell them this but i think the the sort of dobsonian family that i was raised in taught kids to keep secrets from their parents <laughs> it created distance and so i i i feel like uh although i have a relationship with my mother and i love her uh I feel like the dis there has always been a distance between my my full self and what I showed to her ever since I was a little kid, and uh -huh. I guess I feel like keeping this from her isn't much different than what I've always done. Uh -huh. Well, that's certainly a way to handle it. <laughs> I don't know if it's healthy, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's. It's something that weighs well, it's on. It's also easy to fear rejection. Yeah, you know, we all, as just human beings, long for parental approval, and that's normal and natural. So it can be scary to think that your parents can reject you in some way. Kind of a heavy, heavy note to 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 wind down on, but um, I think with with. Christmas coming up and all that. And a lot of people that may be in a similar boat as me, knowing they're going to have a, a, a they're going to be spending time with religious family in a, oh. in a way that makes uh, these topics fairly unavoidable. 
uh, it's something that weighs a little bit more heavily this time of year. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're able to cover that uh, in, in this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Winnell, for talking to us, for coming on our show. Uh, really appreciate the conversation with you. Thank you so much. It, well, it's it's meant so much to me to have you here. Well, thank you guys for joining the show and 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 keeping these conversations going. It's really healthy to to keep keep talking with everybody about all these issues. So good for you. Keep up the work. All right. Thank you so much. And if people want to find you uh, online, uh, engage with with your work, where where would you direct them? Uh, journeyfree.org. And I want to say one of the things that we do, we have a support group that is we got several hundred people and we that has Zoom meetings three times a month. And people are able to join this community and talk to others about what's going on. It's very healing to hear stories from other people and support each other and find out that you're not alone at all, that a lot of the issues that you're going through are common to others. And uh, so I would encourage people to consider that uh, as one source of, of support. And you do need a social network that's really important for healing. So go to journeyfree.org and go down to services and click on group support. That's my my pitch for today. All right. Well, thank thank you so much, Dr. Winnell. Uh, if folks want to read read the book, uh, remember that is that is leaving the fold. And, uh, you know, that's available all over. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I've, I've read, I read the paperback first and I read the Kindle version this time. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book that if you've listened to the show before, there's a pretty good chance you've heard me mention it. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, I assume everybody's listened to all 100 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works it's a contract right once you once you start you just have to go so all right thank you so much dave hey zach can i can i just say thank you like for letting this be what our 100th episode is about i i know that it's more my wheelhouse than yours but yeah i really appreciate that this 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 meant so much to me. Um, and I know as, as long as we have been sending emails back and forth about ideas for people we would like to interview, she has been on the list, <laughs> you know? Yes. I, I know you, you have talked about this book uh, all through the show and even offline and all of that. So, but yeah, here's the thing, you know, I've read, I've read most of the book. I didn't, I didn't quite finish it, but I do think that people who are Christians or people of faith can read it. Because the thing is, I mean, she's definitely saying that religion is harmful, but many of the stuff she talks about in the book is churches and religious systems that have harmed people. And I think, you know, there there can be, for, for a believer such as myself, there can be a segregation there of, yes, it is just factual that churches have hurt people. And here's some of the ways where that has happened, and here's how it's affected people, whether it's friends or family. And hopefully it just helps people to have more empathetic and understanding conversations is what I'll say. Yeah. That's, that's what I was hoping that you'd be able to, to get out of it. You know, you've had lots of great conversations with people. So you have more understanding than most, but 
uh, I think if more people of faith understood what it is like to lose and leave your faith and take yourself apart and put yourself back together, I think there would be a lot less of these simplistic, they're just leaving to sin. They're just, you know, they were never a Christian to begin with. You know, like all of these deflections and, and minimalizations are just offensive and, and not recognizing that this can be a really earth shattering event for people that. Yeah. I think a lot of that is just reactionary without um, asking questions in a sincere way. Yeah. Like asking questions out of sincerity of really caring about somebody else, wanting to listen to them. So, I mean, you know, it's not asking questions in the typical apologetic way where you're looking for somebody to say something and then trap them with some kind of an argument. It's, it's looking to understand. And I, I think this is, one of the best things that if somebody's listening is a Christian now, this is one of the best things that Christians can do is just listen to people. I think everybody in America has an understanding of what the gospel is, right? So if they wanted to follow Jesus, they can, they can make that choice. But otherwise I think we can just listen and try to understand where, where somebody else is. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Dave, and I have to run. You got to run. <laughs> yeah. It's been a hundred good ones. Uh, you know, ninety-five good ones, five stinkers, <laughs> and they there's are all, there's always one. a few. <laughs> there's always a few. And with that, Merry Christmas to all our listeners out there. And this has been our one hundredth episode of VCW Pod. We appreciate all of you listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to VCW Pod on Patreon and become a Patreon supporter. You can find us uh, on X Twitter at VCW Pod. I am at Dave J Lester. Zach is at Muzak M U Z A C H. You can also go to Zach's website, music.bandcamp.com, and hear some of his music and order a vinyl Christmas record. You can also listen to my other podcast, Does the Bible Say That? Wherever fine podcasts are sold. Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%.